All right. Josh Smith here, live at Flat Five Studios again. My guest today is a good friend and one of my favorite musicians, um, honestly, going these days. I think he's one of the most talented cats out there. He's someone who, when I listen to him play, I can see the hours of, you know, work. I can see the respect and love for all styles of music, which uh, means a lot to me. I love seeing people who I know love and respect the stuff. He's just a special cat who, when you meet him, you always come away just thinking, I love that guy. Uh, and he's coming to us from Nashville, Tennessee. Today, everybody, welcome J.D. Simo. Oh, man. Well, I couldn't mirror the sentiment more, man. Shit. <laughs> yeah, man. It more. Thank you for doing this. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So I kind of start everything by asking everybody how they first got the guitar put in their hands. And I actually don't know the answer to this question with you. Um, I don't know a lot about your family upbringing. Mine was not a very musical family, and it was a really random occurrence that the guitar got placed in my hands when I was three. How did it happen for you? <laughs> it was actually very similar uh because my family is all athletes and uh, I grew up in Chicago um, and uh, in the city. And my father, you know, is a very athletic, old school. Uh, he was 50 when I was born and he had already raised an entire family of four kids in the 50s and 60s. Um, and uh, he was, a, a, you know, a poor kid from Chicago. Uh, he became an ad man. He worked for the Chicago Blackhawks as a scout. He was, wow. he was, he, he had a very, very interesting life. And my mom was like a beauty queen. She was, she was a, uh, um, uh, Miss Illinois, 1970. And she was like a hippie. She was born in 1950 and she was like out, like, you know, it, as I, as I got older, it was like, Oh no. Oh no. Like when I saw the movie Almost Famous, I was like, oh, Jesus, that's my mom. Like, cause she was, cause she was out hanging like with, with, with very prominent bands and like dating rock stars and stuff in the late sixties and early seventies. And, um, and so, uh, you know, when I came around, uh, you know, my father was all about sports, all about sports and all that kind of stuff. And I was an only child in my, situation which you are too right josh yeah no no i have a sister yeah. oh you have a sister that's right and uh and so so anyway i've i fell in love with music of immediately i saw elvis on television and i saw the movie the blues brothers you know like when i'm like two three years old and um and that's what started it for me and it was it was immediately like uh i was specifically taken with steve cropper and specifically taken with Scotty Moore. Like I just thought the two of those guys were just the coolest dudes ever. And um, eventually got them to get me a guitar when I was four. And, you know, took lessons in the very beginning for, you know, a, a couple of years. And as you know, like, you know, it's just like getting records and becoming obsessed with records and learning off records. And I was real lucky growing up in Chicago because I had the Lincoln Park Library and I had access to like every record ever made. And it was blocks from where I grew up. And, uh, you know, you could go in and walk out with stacks of records. And 
also, as you know, it's like if I walked in and I wanted, you know, like I'd read about Sergeant Pepper or heard about Sergeant Pepper or something, it's like, then it's like, oh, well, you know, you should check out Pet Sounds and you should check out, uh, you know, uh, uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn by Pink Floyd. And you should check out, you know, like music is like that, where it's like one thing leads to 10 other things, you know, and so I was just really taken with it from an early age and it was an escape like we all do you know I kind of you know there were some messed up things about my childhood and I tunneled that into music and uh and went from there and much like yourself started playing you know gosh I mean I was playing in bars and stuff by the time I was eight nine years old you know and you know much like yourself and a lot of other of our friends it's it's kind of funny because it's like growing up I felt so special and then like, as you get older, you meet all your other buddies and you're like, Hey, wait a minute. You got the same damn story. Okay. Well, cool. <laughs> it is very common among guys. You know, what's, what's the most amazing to me about that is, you know, obviously it's, it's not just our generation. It's been this way since the beginning guys playing young and yeah. getting good, but there is a proliferation of guys our age that have not only started very young but i feel like a lot of guys in our little circle are very serious about it you know not that we were like overly studious and didn't love it or something but that we had a real like sense of this is what we were meant to do and we treated really with a lot of respect and seriousness so i think you'll you'll find a lot of guys our generation just just like really worked really hard at it because we we loved it a lot and that's why 20 plus years down the road now almost 30 we're all still doing this for a living you know what i mean because we yeah. treated it that way absolutely man absolutely and also and i know i think you and i i know me and kirky have talked about this to a certain extent and i think you you and i have talked about this as well but there's also you know like being sort of like late generation x and early millennial there's this weird point in time where you know i gr even growing up in a gigantic city like chicago i didn't have other kids that were into what i was into um and i have like distinct memories of like being in grammar school and being obsessed with you know all whatever i was obsessed with musically right. and like all the other kids were like into green day and i was like I hate this shit, you know, like I can't like I like and, and just being like, I can't get behind, you know, like like I dug Nirvana. I dug the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, um, I certainly dug hip hop. I dug Wu-Tang Clan and I dug Public Enemy and and all that. But it's like, you know, as far as contemporary music of the time, but it was just like funny, man, like I could even in contemporary music. I was like, you know, seven years old, like thinking Dookie was like, yeah. like garbage, you know, like, and everybody was obsessed with it. And it's weird because there's this like faction in music, like generationally where it was, you know, I, I was kind of like an island, much like yourself and others. And I feel like millennials, like maybe, you know, five to eight years removed, like it wasn't that way. Like all of a sudden you had little right. clusters, you know. You're and, right. When I talk to guys a little bit younger than us, they seem to have a more 
common story of f- finding a group of guys their age that they started playing with very young. And you're you're right. Yeah. I never had that. Like I was forced to yeah. f- find older guys to play with. With in turn, I would say probably push me further down the path I was already on, anyways, of blues and jazz and that kind of music because that's what they liked. Um, and I was heading there anyways. But maybe if I would have found some young guys to play with. I would have, you know, changed the things I was listening to, but it, it, yeah, they, they just weren't around. When I first met Derek Trucks, it was like a revelation to meet someone else my age <laughs> who was like me, and it, it felt that yeah, way yeah. when I when we met, and it was like, wow, this is like, there's this is okay. I, there's other people my age who do this, who love it, who want to do it, and that's the thing I, I always talk to him about every time I see him, which is not often. Man, isn't it crazy that 30 years later, you know, we've come out the end of this and we're both, you know, you, you've, you've had a different success doing your thing, but we're both still professional musicians. Even just that is amazing in, in the end to me. It, you know, I think it's crazy. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt at all, man. But that is a weird generational um, thing. And, um, but then, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, for me, the, it changed the most when I moved to Nashville. I was 20 when I moved, right before I turned 21, I moved to Nashville. And, uh, you know, I starved my ass off for a year. And I'm lucky as a mofo that it was a year and not 10 years or five or six years. But, you know, the first year I mean, I was, I was starving and it was, it was, you know, but once I started working and things started kind of upticking for me, like, it was then that I, for the first time, really, really like started working with guys my age, you know, like on different instruments and so on and so forth. Like, you know, especially when I started doing sessions and stuff like that, it was, you know, there was a group of guys that were like all of a sudden my age or there'd be one or two cats, you know, that were my age that were on the session. And there's a bond there. Cause it's like, Oh man, we're the young guys coming up, you know? And it was, that was really cool. It was, it was, it was great to not be, to not be a, you know, a unicorn anymore. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, I don't know about you, but like, I always, younger when I was, and I tell this to uh, young guys all the time when, when they ask, of course, it's not like I walk around, you know, offering unsolicited advice because we know what that feels like. Right. We've had unsolicited advice yelled at us since we were freaking eight years old, you know? Yeah. And, um, but um uh uh the uh <laughs> when i was 13 14 years old i couldn't wait to be older i di- i didn't want to be like the phrase oh man he's so good for his age yeah. was like no i don't want to be good for my age i want to be good i just want to yeah. be good like I hated being like, I didn't like that. Like I couldn't wait to get to the point that age didn't factor into it. Like, cause I just wanted to be a guy, you know? And, uh, and that's, that's, you know, and that's the thing where it's like all of a sudden one day, nobody cares. It's like, you're, you're, you're not the young kid anymore. And it's like, all right, what do you got? Mm-hmm. You know? And I couldn't wait for that day. I'm not sure that that's a mutually exclusive, uh, you know, uh, feeling, but, uh, but I, for mine, like, I just, I couldn't wait for it, you know? And I'm sure you could, you, you're probably the same in that where it's like, I, you know, man, I just want to be a cat, you know? Yeah. I, I just wanted number one. I mostly, I, 
I didn't care really about anybody outside of musicians. All I wanted was musicians to treat me yeah, yeah. Not like a kid. You know what I mean? That yeah, was yeah. most important. Totally. To yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. Totally, uh, man. Dude, so, okay, so, so you're in Chicago. He's so good for his age. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so you're in Chicago. You take lessons a little bit. By the way, what was the first guitar? Uh, it's I have it in the other room. It's a, it's a little... Uh, 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 nylon string acoustic guitar. It was yeah. like an, you know, maybe a sixty dollar thing, and that was my guitar that I played for 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 a couple of years. And then I got a little travel guitar, electric guitar, and that was my first electric guitar. And actually, my daughter has it now. I gave it to my daughter, and uh, and those are my guitars. Um, then and then I had a, uh, I don't know. I might still have it, but I had then it then there was like a copy strat that I got when I was seven or something. And that was like the first full size. And then I remember saving up my gig money uh, to buy my first fender. And I bought like a Mexican strat when I was I was probably eight or something. And it was like to have fender on the headstock was like a big freaking deal. You know, I remember yeah. that. But that was, you know, that's a pretty similar, similar progression to what I had. I had a little nylon string acoustic real small then then yeah. i had a small electric that looked like a strap but it was literally like so small it had one pickup yeah yeah red yeah, yeah. uh then my first full-size guitar was an acoustic so i went acoustic electric acoustic like a regular steel string acoustic then i got um i think then i got a charvel it was my first like big mm -hmm. electric yeah yeah yeah, crazy. yeah yeah no and then all right it goes, so, and then it goes from there <laughs> well yeah and it never ends so okay so yeah. before you go to nashville what are like those you know your teen years in chicago like you're playing gigs i know you know in chicago it's probably a little tougher to to get around in winter and things like that going to gigs by yourself so i'm assuming your parents were taking you to these gigs they were and what happened that actually helped me the most is we actually as a family relocated to phoenix arizona when i was 13. okay and um that aided the whole situation immensely because the other thing as you well know and remember you know being underage trying to play in clubs is a nightmare in big cities and um there's not there's you know you're kind of at the mercy of if they're going to be cool with it or not you know and um so us relocating to phoenix helped immensely because things were so much laxer there man and mm -hmm. i was able to play every weekend and not have problems but yeah my parents would would um my parents would would kind of pull duty and take me to the gigs uh, much like yours and lots of other our friends and and that you know that happened I mean I was 12 13 and it was like became the regular thing where it would be every weekend and I hated school and um you know I couldn't uh, you know I, I was I, I had a bad attitude man I, I was real uh, my attitude was very much I know what I freaking want to do let me go do it you know, and, and in retrospect, it's like, I want to like slap the shit and be like, you know what, you have some respect and you'd be a good, you know, cause it's like, I did, I had a real bad attitude and, um, you know, but you, youth is wasted on the young as they say. And, uh, 
so you know i was doing that and then i actually you know i i dropped out of of school when i was 15 and went on the road full time and like you know left and that was that and i lived in vans touring around with people both doing my own shows some and then also playing in a host of i mean you know as i'm as you have as well you know i mean just lots of bizarre stories i played in a in a in like a a, a tahano like a bunch of like mexican gangster type band called barrio latino i played in that band and we had some crazy times in california and throughout the southwest uh my first time to hollywood was playing in that that band and that's a really really that's i mean it's like a it's like a tarantino movie like that my first 36 hours in hollywood was crazy it was just full of drugs and wow. gangsters and stuff it was crazy and uh i played in that band i played in a couple other bands um there was a guy named danny rhodes i played in his band for a long time and he's actually he grew up with michael rhodes and uh danny had a band in the 80s here in nashville called the nerve which was uh like a studio a studio cat like band here and uh so that actually some of those relationships helped when i moved to nashville eventually playing with danny all those years um but yeah man you know i just you know i was a bad i was i was a bad boy i dropped out of school at 15 and went on the road and and basically you know toured all over the country for twenty dollars or 120 dollars and everywhere in between and sleeping on floors and so on and so forth until I decided I was going to move, you know, permanently to, to, to another place, either Austin or Nashville. And I chose Nashville because I had a, I had one friend that I could crash, that I could crash with. That was my deciding factor. So right. I moved here in 06, you know, man. And that's, I mean, I don't think people quite realize number one, how important sometimes just making a leap of faith move like that is to, ending up where we end up you know as, as professionals right uh, but also how fucking scary it is you know it's like it just when i moved here to la i had just married nikki my wife and i had no idea what what i was gonna do you know i was 22 yeah. years old and it was like okay let's get in a truck and drive all the way from florida to california and just, you know, I'll figure it out. I had to get a day job, you know, which is still the only one I ever had. And it's like, it, yeah, it's, it is. It's like a giant leap of like belief in yourself, but it is, it's super scary. Totally, man. Totally. And it's, and everybody wants to believe that they don't have to do those things too. You know, I know I didn't, you know, I can remember like, you know, every big thing that was difficult and really hard. Like you want to believe that we, that like, there's like, I call it the lottery system that like everybody wants to believe that, oh, there's just one thing that's going to happen and it's just going to, you're going to win the lottery and it's all going to change overnight. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. Not, not even for, not for anyone, you know, there's, there's always the, the same, the circumstances and what surrounds things might be different but um the actual act of one foot in front of the other and uh doing really really difficult things and just getting used to the concept of of being terrified and doing things you're not used to um 
you know, the quicker you can kind of get right with that, I think the happier, uh, happier you'll be because that never changes. Um, you know, I remember, you know, just to kind of exemplify that point, I remember I was hanging, this is a long time ago, probably 20 years ago, I was hanging um, backstage uh, with an artist that I happened to know. Um, and it was, you know, he was getting ready to go out and play like a huge shed, like the Hollywood Bowl or something. We were on his bus mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was nervous about, is it full? Are there, is it, is, is the house full? Is there, is it like, what's the crowd look like out there? Like he was nervous. It was like, dude, there's 25,000 people out there. Like even then, even at that level, he's nervous about how many people are there. Like, and I was just like, I don't know why that's stuck in my mind, but like, it never goes away. <laughs> whether you're hoping a hundred people show up or whether 25,000 people are showing up, like it's all, you know, we're all insecure and we all kind of, you know, we're, I mean, put it this way. I make this joke all the time, but it's like, if, if you like do this, if you have like the need to do this, meaning like, play music, express yourself, like perform in front of other people, like invest tons of your, of your, your intermost, like, like uh, close feelings and expressions for other people then to judge. Like there's something wrong with you. There's something that like went wrong early. Like we're messed up, you know, like we, to have that need is kind of not normal, you know? So it's like, it's like, you know, whatever you can do to kind of circumvent uh, the normal kind of craziness, you know, I mean, uh, there, as, as I, you know, as I say, there's, there's help groups that can help us, you know, <laughs> and it's like the older you get, it's like, you know, I find more and more people, uh, as Mark Marin says, you know, more and more of us uh, in these secret society meetings that are all Zoom nowadays, you know, because it helps. <laughs> it does. So. It does help, man, you know, and so, okay, so when you get to Nashville, was your plan, I mean, you probably didn't even have one, but was it mostly no. make a living as a guitar player by, by any means necessary? Or had you already kind of thought, I know you, you, know, you were doing some of your own stuff anyways in Phoenix, but was it like, do more of my own stuff when I get to Nashville? Or was it more like, I'm just going to make a living as a guitar player? It was both. It was, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was 20 and I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So it was, it was, I mean, I certainly tried to get something going on my own and, you know, went into Warner brothers, went into Capitol records, did the showcases and, 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 uh, was the show pony and had a bunch of near misses and, um, you know, had a bunch of you know development deals offered that thank god i didn't sign because they would have robbed me of years of my life and other things wouldn't have happened and those were tough i mean that that, that those are hour-long conversations about those things but it's like I, I i i tried anything and everything it was it was complete scramble of like whatever i can do to survive and you know eventually i mean i was completely 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 out of money i was out of i was you know i couldn't get anything going i couldn't get a gig i couldn't get anything and then i tell the story and it's completely true where it's like i went down on the street corner uh down on broadway and played on the street corner to see if i could make some money uh because i was behind on my rent and i didn't have enough money for groceries and so um 
you know, which is a really melodramatic freaking thing to do, by the way. It's like I could have just gone to Starbucks and got a job, but it's like, no, in my melodramatic head, you know, I'm like, no, this is it, man. I mean, this is, I mean, it's totally like, <clears throat> it's like a Saturday Night Live skit or something. It's like, my life is over. I'm going to go play in the street corner. But again, I'm a kid, you know, I'm 20 years old and I don't know anything. So, but thank God I went and played on the street corner because my friend Dave Rowe, who's a great bass player, uh, uh, walked by and said, what the hell are you doing? And I told him the truth. I said, I'm fucked, you know? And uh, he said, well, come in here and meet Don Kelly. And I didn't know who Don Kelly was, um, but I walked in and there's freaking Guthrie Trap uh, in his in all his glory, like at right. his re most refined point. He'd been in Don's band for, you know, like five years at that point. So it's like, you know, he was a complete assassin. Uh, not that he's not now, but I mean, it's like, right, yeah, right. you know, you do that gig five, six nights a week, four hours a night for five years. I mean, you are, you, you are a sniper. Um, and uh, I was like, fuck, I can't do this, you know, but I was desperate. So, you know, cause I'd never played country before and, and, right. um, uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a much longer story, but essentially I finally got to audition for Don a few weeks later, which meant that I got up and sat in and I woodshedded like I never had woodshedded before, um, up until that point. And, um, and I did well enough that Don had me play that following week and I was a sub for about a six month period and you know that six months i mean i've never worked harder i've never worked harder as a as a as a musician because i was trying to scale mount olympus and uh, you know then eventually don gave me the gig and that work continued i mean it was until i was in that band for about two years solid I didn't feel a sense of continuity or consistency in my playing. Like it was just a, a moment to moment, like you suck, you suck, you suck. You so suck. Oh, you're going to get fired. Like it was just, it was really fucking stressful, but it was, but it was good because, you know, I learned a lot through that, um, how to persevere and, and also more importantly, like how to fall down constantly and get back up. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, by the time, by the time, by the time I left that band, I mean, like it's, and it stays with you. Like, like nothing fucking scares me anymore, you know? Cause like in that, in the time of that band, I had to learn how to compartmentalize fear in a way that, you know, is absolutely immeasurable. Like whether it's fear of screwing up or, you know, I mean, I tell these stories all the time and I'm sure you can relate like playing at the baked potato and stuff like that too, that it's like every single night, some, somebody heavy was in there, you know, like every night it would be like, Oh, Nora, Nora Jones is here with Smokey Hormel or, or T-Bone Burnett is here with Jay Belarus or uh, James Burton is up top with Paul Lyme or, you know, Reggie Young used to come you know, every couple months or so and sit right in front of me all night long, like, you know, <laughs> six feet from me, you know, and it's like, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it, you, you, you get used to pressure, you get used to how to deal with it, you know, all that kind of stuff, which goes even beyond like how to play, like all the other stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway. Well, so. plus, I mean, the overlooked <laughs> part too is 
just the sheer amount of hours, the practical application you got on that gig. Yeah. I mean, it's so many, just the process of getting your shit together, getting on stage, being a professional that many times for that many hours, so much can't be can't be replaced and and for you to be doing it in a music that maybe at first wasn't something that was a hundred percent your bag that you had spent all your time learning you know that dude it drives Absolutely. you so much and so yeah i can i can relate to like you were you know working so hard on kind of doing the homework making sure you did a good job keeping the gig being professional all that stuff it's like when i when i first got to la i had no idea what it meant to play with anybody other than myself. That was all I had done was play blues and done my own music. And it was like, when I started going on the road with other musicians is when I felt like I became a real professional because I was playing music that I didn't, not that I didn't care about, but that was not mine. And, and I had to do more right. than I'd ever done. And all of a sudden you start to feel like, like a real adult professional. Totally. No, absolutely, man. And it's, it's <laughs> it's a crazy thing man i mean there's so many you know as if you know being a musician isn't a minefield of uh of psychological as i keep saying like psychological like you know problems like uh there's so much to it so uh but no it was it was it was an amazing thing you know um i uh, it's it's i'm sad uh, you know, early during the pandemic, you know, Don announced that he was finally retiring after 33 years of 33 years, man, That's crazy. 33 years of six gigs a night. And when I was there for six years, nearly six years, five and a, we'll call it five and a half. And there were only three instances. There was one time when he was too sick to be there one time, one night. There was one time where he actually went on a bit of a vacation and he missed Wednesday and Thursday night. He was there for the weekend. Okay. And there was one other time that, um, that he, that, that, that he was, that he was sick. Okay. In my five and a half years. So that's like a total of four nights he missed, you know, that just in my tenure, like, I mean, he, yeah. It's crazy, man. And I'm, but the thing that I'm sorry about is I'm sorry that more people won't get to, uh learn from the experience because as we know those types of scenarios uh, become fewer and fewer and what was probably the most special about that environment is is the fact that don being this really really old school james brown ray charles-esque general Patton band leader it, it, it's, there's something that that does to you. Like not saying that I treat my people like this, <laughs> but you know, when you're a kid and you think that you're fucking great and you're not having somebody to yell and scream at you. And like to say that, that, that I, that he humbled me as an understatement, you know, <laughs> because Don, like Don is not impressed with anybody except Jimmy Vaughn. Like Jimmy Vaughn is his favorite guitar player. And it's like, he is, he, he is, he is completely unimpressed and unfazed by anything. And so it's like, it, you know, like doing something that he thinks is good means the world because he hates everything. So, sure. you know, there's something about working in that environment, you know, that, that it does make a man out of you you know, and I certainly entered that scenario 
a hell of a lot cockier than I left it. You know, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of humility in that gig for many different reasons. And I'm sorry that more kids won't get to go through it because it really, God almighty, you, you know, yeah, man. (laughs) I think more kids need to get yelled at. No. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm grateful for the times that, you know, drummers would tell me, you know, Hey, your, your, your time isn't happening yet. This is what I need from you. Or when a guitar player would tell me, you know, that, that's not helping what you're playing while I'm singing there. I need you to play in this register or do this or like all those little things that, you know, as a kid, you know, you maybe can, can you have two choices. It's like you get upset and go off into your little shell because you can't handle constructive criticism or you soak that shit in and, and it makes yeah. you better like overnight. And I would, that's was all I cared about was how do I get better tomorrow than today? If I make a mistake on stage, right. And they tell me about it. I'll never make that mistake again, ever. You know? Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Did, <laughs> did you know? I mean, obviously, you, you didn't really know the history of that gig before you stepped into it. You just walked in there and no. saw Guthrie playing. And, you know, yeah. so that's its own thing, like seeing somebody play like that. And he's such a great player. But, like, you know, yeah. then you then you learn about the lineage of the guys who have done that gig. Um it is it's got to be like like a little bit of yeah you you had to have a i can't fuck this up feeling a little bit huge yeah no big time and it was it was a little different you know um it it, everything around broadway and that gig changed you know while i was there and when daniel donato took my place it was already kind of like too touristy and too uh, mainstream. Like I'm really grateful that I got to experience the last little bit of when it was busy, but it was like, it truly was a mixture of tourists and people from town because producers and other musicians and like people from the newspaper and all that stuff would go down there to grab a beer and a burger and see who was playing with Don. And by the time I was leaving, that wasn't the case anymore because it was just too crazy. It was too, it was way too uh, Bourbon Street. Um, yeah, yeah, that's... And, uh, and so I'm really grateful that I got to experience um, that element of it because it really was like um, a very old school type of, environment that it was you know you were surrounded by uh heavy people um and that was you know obviously really helpful uh to you know start a career and all that kind of stuff but it was also just to just to have experienced that i mean it just it'll never be like that again you know and uh i'm grateful for that and that's i'm sure you have this feeling yourself that it's like as students of history it's continually amazing to me to like stop for a second and realize that like history is happening right like as you're going through it you know and it's like i look at that and it's like wow man i mean because that was it was tight man like you know looking up and it's like god there's james burton up there hanging out and you know uh you know dan and patrick from the from the black keys at the bar having a burger i mean it was you know it'll never happen again like that 
Yeah. And, um, you know, and it was because it was everybody wanted to see who there, there was a time that everybody wanted to see who was playing in Don's band, you know, mostly the guitar player, but whoever was playing in that band, because, you know, it was it was a coveted slot. It was the best in town gig you could have in town uh, from a paying perspective and also like a feature like um, a feature perspective. And yeah, once I learned what I was dealing with. Uh, yeah, no, I tried to block that out as best I could, but I, it was an epic fail. I mean, I, I, you know, it was tough. It, it, it was really hard and you, and that's another thing, but here's another, here's another tiny little nugget here, you know, you know, for the first year, no matter how good of a night I had, which now granted, I mean, I really, I, I in my mind, it took me about two years to, to grow into that gig where I was, where I had some level of consistency. That's what I remember, but I, I could be wrong with that. But it's like, at least for the first year or so, you know, a couple of hundred a night of where's Guthrie? Like, you know, and the funny thing is, is that I'm talking to Guthrie after about it. That's what Guthrie went through of where's Johnny Highland and Johnny yeah. Highland going through where's red volkart and red yeah. volkart going through where's troy lancaster and troy lancaster going through where's kenny vaughn and kenny vaughn going through uh you know where's where's uh, uh brent mason or whatever you know so i mean it's like but even that like getting used to where that doesn't phase you because at a certain point it did it doesn't phase you because you've been you've literally been pissed on enough that you're just like ah whatever doesn't matter i'm just gonna do my gig you know, and uh, it, it's it's so funny, though, man, like all the psychological like, you know, it's just it's not a surprise that like all of us have like both a deep wounded like sense of like trauma, like a, P a PTSD that'll never leave us, mm -hmm. <laughs> but also all the positive elements, you know. Well, dude, I remember from the outside, <laughs> the first time I saw that gig when I was a kid in Nashville. I think I was I went I was on tour. We were in Memphis doing something. Then we went to Nashville for a gig, and I went on an off night and and I saw Johnny do the gig. Yeah. And so of course yeah. I was blown away. You know I'm I, I'm a huge Danny Gatton fan. I loved I'd love to see Johnny. Whatever. And then the next time I went back, Guthrie was on the gig, and I felt like where the fuck is Johnny Island? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, of course. Who's this guy? I never yeah. heard of this guy. You know? So, yeah. It 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 is. That's a weird. I've never put in that situation following, a, you know, in a chair that's like the band stays and you were just replacing a, a revolving door of chair. That had to be interesting. But also, like you said, being in that world as a kid, you had access to guys who were working in the other side in Nashville that started to maybe fill out your Rolodex, right, and start calling you for sessions and things like that. Yeah, and it was a gradual, I mean, you know, it was really great because it was a real gradual stair step. It was, it was never like, uh, by the time I did like some, you know, my first big, like, you know, a team session stuff, I was really ready for it, you know, because in the beginning it's all custom projects going to people's houses, you know, all this kind of stuff where you're learning how to, you know, you're learning how to record, you're learning how to read a chart, you're learning how to come up with a part, while you're listening to the demo for the first time yep. you're learning how to do it in one or two takes um and there's definitely as you know there's a muscle to that um and um you know that 
you know, you do that for a while, you do a whole bunch of those. And then, you know, got into doing publishing work <clears throat> for Warner Chapel and Universal and all that were, you know, going in and playing on, you know, pro sessions or whatever, but for songwriter demos uh, for all the big publishing companies. And, you know, then you start working with some bigger players and then all of a sudden, you know, you know, uh, you know, Ted Hewitt was a, a big producer and Paul Worley, another big producer, were the first two big producers that called me to 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 work. And uh, by the time that happened, I mean, I was nervous, <clears throat> but by the time that happened, I was really used to it and I knew how to do it. And so it was it was then it was just get in there and do a good job. And and um, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, you know, because it was it was it was it was a solid um you know, three, four years, you know, of once I got into doing it, um, you know, doing sessions most days and then going to play with Don at night, you know? So it's like, again, you're just so, and the other thing, this is another thing I'll say about Don's band. Don's band from a technical standpoint is so fucking difficult that sessions were so easy because what was called of me on the Don gig was 400 million times harder and more taxing than anything that would ever get thrown at me on a, on a mainstream session. You know, yeah. like, I mean, it was just like, it was, it, it, I mean, I, it, it's, it's akin to being like Olympian, you know, like weightlifting, you know, and then being asked to like go for a brisk walk for someone, you know, like it was just like, there was absolutely no, you know, it's not like I was ever asked to do anything on any of those sessions that was even, you know, because I know it's still, you know, I mean, Don never had a set list. There were hundreds of songs, literally hundreds of songs that he would call from. You never knew what he was going to call next, you know, like it was, you know, I never knew what the hell. And he might call something that I didn't know or something that's particularly really difficult. And he would turn around and he would hum you the head that he wants you to play or something like that. And, you know, T-Bone Burnett might be standing right in front that it's like, oh, God, now I got to do this. And I I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And so-and-so is two feet in front, you know. So, again, like sessions, it was it was it was it was a piece of cake compared to playing with Don. <laughs> Before you started doing sessions in Nashville, had you ever done any sessions for anyone other than yourself, like your own music? Yeah, I had actually. When I was 17, 18, 19 years old in Phoenix, um, I did, you know, what little there was in Phoenix when I would come home from touring with people, you know, playing on stuff for radio commercials and stuff like that. So I had a little bit of experience, but nothing compared to, you know, when you're in L.A., New York, Nashville, like, you know, I, 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 I had no idea, you know, how the system really worked but i'd done a little bit so <clears throat> yeah because that was that was a rude awakening for me like i'd only only times i'd ever even been in studios until i moved here was to record my own music you know what i mean so yeah. it was like yeah like you said it's a different muscle like learning how to start hearing an idea the second they play you the rough while you're making your own chart and knowing what you're gonna play and coming up with parts and tones and and all that stuff that was like yeah very incremental process over the course of, you yeah. know, yeah, sessions at people's homes, little sessions, you know, here. And then next thing you know, by the time you get to a big session, you're prepared for it. Yeah. Yeah. No. And so it's, it's cool. 
and then you know and as you know i mean the most fun the, the thing that i miss the most um um about that that life um is the camaraderie with the other players you know i miss you know because you get paired as you know you get paired with certain people because you seem you know like uh people view you having a chemistry with this particular rhythm section or that particular mm -hmm. rhythm section or in my case it was like there were certain, like i used to get paired with dan dugmore a lot on steel and other guitar because we played well together and so i'd work with dan a lot russ paul a lot you know that kind of thing and i miss that 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 you know you miss the lunches you miss the hanging with the guys you know um and uh not to mention i mean it's like you know i remember like the first time i was on a record with uh, matt chamberlain on drums and matt they'd flown matt in from la and uh you know for a kid who was not cool in high school and school <laughs> i was very uncool like that feeling of like finally being like a cool kid you know like because i remember like matt was super cool with me we worked on a few things together but like i remember like you know uh like i have this memory of like the first time i was working with matt and i was sort of laying low which is was generally how i would avoid stepping in shit in environments that were high stress i would just lay low and keep my head down and do a good job um but anyway there's another musician on the eight another older 18 musician that we both know on the session who is a big politicker and um and he was trying to like hang with matt and like politic with him and all that and like matt like understood what he was doing and I remember Matt like going, hey, JD, man, you want to go get lunch, you know, and being like, oh, you want to go to lunch with me? <laughs> being like, being like, oh, man, I've been picked. I'm cool all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> like there's that element of it. That's like really that I miss a lot, you know, because um, oh, yeah. there's some really groovy cats, you know, it's always, it's always the hang. Not not that I don't love the work. I like doing sessions, you know, but it was always like man I, I can't recreate that feeling of you know the first time you go to a session in la and you know abe jr's on drums or Vinny or you know uh, you know yeah. jr you know guys like or neil steubenhouse is on bass or nathan east it's like whoa this is fucking ridiculous like uh, you know and they treat you like like you know yeah maybe like a kid but also like you belong and it's like wow yeah this means a lot no because yeah yeah because if you're if if you're there then somebody deems you worthy to be there so there's like you know they don't you know like you once you're once you're in the door and especially when you get asked back that's what that's the other thing like yep. when producers start using you and you start doing multiple stuff that's the real thing getting your foot in the door is the one thing but yep. then actually going back again and again like that's when it's like you know the ego the ego likes that <laughs> yeah. so so when along this process playing with don doing sessions growing up also like becoming you know being a, a real like responsible human being an adult starting to have relationships and you know wanting to have different things you know like maybe god forbid a home or a family and things like that when when do you start to think about you know going back and doing your own thing like you are now like when was there a moment you remember where you needed to do it or was it just very gradual 
No, there was a there was a definitive moment, and what happened was is um, I was like twenty six, about to be twenty seven, and I finished uh, a two o'clock session early, and it was like three o'clock, and I was so stoked. I was like, I'm gonna go home and chill out before I go to the gig, before I go to Don's gig that night. And I was so excited, <laughs> like to have a day to go home and do whatever the hell I felt like doing. And, uh, and in the meantime, you know, we had moved, my wife and I, uh, you know, I met my wife the same year that I moved to Nashville. She's a Nashville native, fell in love with her. We were inseparable. I was broke. She was broke. It was an amazing situation. We, we, we both became adults together. Um, and, um, she's my best friend and, we moved into the house that we're still in um, and all, you know, all of a sudden had a nice house and a nice neighborhood in this adult life. And, you know, I'm 25, 26 years old. And these are, none of these things are things that I'd set out to have. Um, and so I, I was sitting at a freaking red light, man. And I was listening to NPR and I love NPR. And I looked and I was, I was on eighth Avenue, the corner of eighth Avenue and Wedgwood. I'll never forget it at the red light heading South. And, uh, and I realized, you know, I couldn't remember the last time I listened to music for pleasure. Like I was looking at NPR going, I have not sat and listened to an album or listened to music for pleasure. And I can't, I, I can't even remember like music has officially become my job. I am a plumber who happens to play guitar. And it was a real sobering, depressed moment. And you know, I didn't know what the solution was, but I knew I had to do something about it because it made me really unhappy. And the flip side of that also was a great life lesson because I, you know, still live a very frugal lifestyle. Um, I don't really have vices, really. I don't have tons of equipment. I don't have, you know, like I, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm not a, like a collector of anything. Um, I'm very much kind of, uh, in the moment I'm in, I'm, I don't have that gene that some of our friends have, uh, thankfully. And, uh, the, uh, you know, I was like, okay, so I have money, I have security, I have all this kind of stuff and I'm not happy. Okay. So it was a great life lesson of like, okay, none of those things are going to make me happy. So what do I got to do to be happy? And putting that out to the universe, several things happened. One was I got a call uh, or actually at the time it was a MySpace invite. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was, uh, from a, from an old friend of mine, Frank Swart, who was a, who was a great bass player who, uh, at the time was in John Hyatt's band and playing with Patty Griffin. Um, and he's this, you know, weirdo, uh, you know, bass player, and he had this band with Kenny Vaughn called Funk Wrench with this awesome drummer, Adam Abershaw. And they played like sort of bitches brew era, like just complete free where you show up and you just start improvising and that's the gig. Okay. And, um, and so he invited me to do a gig with him and Adam because Kenny couldn't do it. And I said, sure. And so I'd never done that before. I'd never walked into a gig not knowing what we were going to play, knowing that we were just going to improvise for like hours straight without stopping. And 
it flipped a switch in me. I was like, I have to do this. This is what the rest of my life. I was like, this makes me happy. This is joyous. This is, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but this is what I'm going to do in some form or fashion. And so gradually we turned that into what became my, you know, the group Simo. And, you know, it started as like something that we were doing for our own sanity, sort of like guys do in LA, something that we would do once a month, you know, or something. And then it got to, you know, just over the course of like the next year and a half, it became more serious where we, we started um, doing some regional shows and then sort of expanding and going to Alabama or Georgia or Kentucky or whatever. And uh, losing money, losing, you know, lo losing money that we, that we didn't have to lose. Um, but having a fucking great time. And, you know, then eventually, you know, we, I took some savings I had, we made a record so that we could sell it at gigs. And um, eventually, um, you know, and we got, we had some cool stuff happen, you know, like played Bonnaroo and a couple of other things through friendships that I'd had in the music business, got our first agent, um, stuff like that. And, you know, inevitably Frank had to bow out because he couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't do it. You know, he had a family and he couldn't do it. And so right around that time is when we signed our first record deal. And uh, that's when a, our friend, Alad, a uh, young guy from Tel Aviv joined on bass. And um, we, uh, you know, there was another guy in the interim that I think is when we first met, Justin was playing with me. Um, but uh, when a lot joined, that's when things really kind of changed because that's when we signed a record deal and it was like, we're doing this for real. And uh, in 2016 alone, we did, you know, I'm never doing it again, but we did, I don't remember what it was, but it was like 260 some shows that year. And I was gone 300 days. And um, that also will make a man out of you. <laughs> uh, it'll also drive you fucking insane too. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just that thing where it's like, we always have kept our overhead low and, um, uh, you know, uh, just one thing has led to another with it. And, you know, up until the pandemic, I mean, we were, we were out, you know, at least 200, if not more shows a year. And it was just always that thing of keeping our overhead low and, and, um, and going out there and, and grinding and having a great time, you know, and it's just kind of, that's the, but I mean, I, in doing that, you know, it's like, not only did I completely give up this session and side career, um, you know, and that was, a, that was a choice that I eventually had to make and I made it and it was a tough one. Um, but, you know, for the longest time, you know, I had to make really tough decisions and, you know, me and Adam, you know, Adam still plays with me. He's my brother, you know, he, uh, you know, we had to make a lot of tough decisions because there's so many gigs that you got to play that, you know, you're just going to lose money. Um, and that's another kind of eventual thing that you just, you know, no one skips that step, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's part of the equation. Um, you know, and then the joke is, is that, you know, you, 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 you always want help. You always want, you know, whatever it is that you see the people around you have that you, that you at least perceive other people to have, 
And um, the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, everybody kind of goes through the same thing. And it's that same thing with that lottery system. It's like everyone wants to believe that it's like, oh, that agent or that label or that management company or that publicist or whatever. And it's like, no, you just got to do the work. And, you know, somehow or another, it works out you know, somehow or another, it's not, not that it's not going to be hard because it is, but, um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, I really yeah. am grateful for it all. And I've had a, I've had a really great time seeing the world, seeing the, every nook and cranny of this continent and, uh, and, you know, played what I felt like playing. <laughs> it's been amazing. Well, yeah. And that's a rewarding thing, you know, even if it's for 20 people or a hundred people, when you start doing that on the regular, playing your shit and people, any amount of people care about it, it's, it, it is it, it like, it feeds you in a way that nothing else can. And it makes you want to, like you said, lose money to do it, devote all your energy, your passion, your love. It makes it kind of okay to do that because of the feeling you get from, you know, doing that, you know, getting some sort of feedback from something that you've created and is the most personal to you but yeah it's super hard and you end you end up with lots of shit or get off the pop moments where it's like nope i can't go on the road with you and make money right now because i have to keep doing this where i'm losing money or no i can't do these sessions that week because i have four gigs that are gonna just break even you know or whatever there's a lot of those moments and I still st I struggle with that still now, you know what I mean? But it's the choices we have to make if this is what we want to do. Yeah, and it's, I mean, and also, I mean, it does get better. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy once you start to go down it. And um, it's, uh, you know, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's, it's just like anything. It's you're building a small business, you know, and so, you know, no restaurant starts out packed you know and uh i think you know the uh, not that anybody's asking my my advice or anything but it's like you know my advice always is just you know be frugal keep your overhead low and um you know there's multiple different ways that you can uh that you can ease uh the bleeding um but usually you know it it's it it means uh, continually kind of having to do a, a check on your own humility, you know? Um, and again, I mean, it's interesting because there's certain musicians that have become really, really close friends of mine. Um, like Luther Dickinson is a really close friend of mine and Luther and I, Luther's a, a, uh, a working class musician. Um, you know, Luther always likes to say, it's like, there's the, you know, he's like, he's like, there's us, man, the ones who are proud to own our vans and drive them, you know, like, and, and, and there's something about that that is really kind of cool because most of, you know, uh, our heroes, this is something that Luther and I talk about. So let me explain completely. So Luther and I joke about this all the time that um, no matter how much I kind of look into and study old heroes of mine, the amount of them, <laughs> I love this, the amount of them that were janitors or worked in funeral homes is pretty much 80% or higher. And also, you know, 
for better or worse, you know, the majority of my the people that I absolutely love, you know, played in residency gigs, playing to a hundred or less people. It's kind of weird when I look at it, but it's like even Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, uh, all the guys in Chicago, um, you know, and I sort of pop this bubble on people all the time because it's like we imagine these people as like Mount Rushmore, you know, but it's like, no, man, uh, you know, Muddy and Wolf and, and, and Otis Rush and all those guys, you know, they would go home to Chicago and they would play a tavern uh, from Wednesday through Sunday. Um, and that was their weekly gig, how they paid their bills. And, you know, they played more gigs in that environment than they did big concerts, you know, Absolutely. and it's just, there's, there's, and I'm saying all this to say this is that it's like, you know, the Beatles played Shea stadium with one roadie, you know, riding in the back of a station wagon, you know, Hendrix toured in station wagons with one roadie, you know, like the way that how we view success in the modern era with the buses and the texts and the this and the that and all that, it's a very different, um, we were kind of bombarded with this kind of false sense of what is really reality because the it, there's this kind of alternate reality that's been created you know and not saying that that's a bad thing at all it's just that it enforces this kind of negative like if you don't have these things then you're doing something wrong and that's just not reality you know like it's it's because at the end of the day all these things whether it be what hotel you're staying at how many people are on the road with you, how you're traveling, all that kind of stuff, you pay for that. So it's yeah. your decision how you're going to spend your money. You know what I mean? And there's a really great story that um, my buddy Pat Sweeney tells. Adam tells it too, because Adam was playing with Pat. Pat Sweeney is this great blues uh, singer-songwriter from here, a great guitar player. Um, and he grew up in Akron, Ohio. And Dan Arbach from the Black Keys was in his band. Like he grew up playing in Pat's band. And Adam, my drummer, uh, was also in that band. And um, so they go back. And I know Dan now. I've done stuff with Dan in, in modern times. But they grew up with him. When Brothers hit um, their biggest record, when Tighten Up was became a number one record, and they went from playing um, sort of... Uh, 500 seat clubs all of a sudden they're playing big amphitheaters like within the span of six months um they had pat come out and open a bunch of shows for them like hey buddy we're making it come on out let's pay you know we'll pay you good we'll pay you a thousand bucks to get up and play and and sell your merch and da 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 and it was you know or whatever it is and he said that uh the mental image that sticks in his head is uh showing up to whatever the first shed was that they were playing and there's dan and pat getting out of a van and they had two vans and a box truck with all the gear in it and you know in a in this huge you know fifteen thousand seat shed and he asked him about it and he was like what what's going on man and like dan was very matter of fact about it he was like what do you mean what's going on and he's like well dude you're you're happening like you're in a van and he's like pat and i have starved for the better part of 10 years and we're putting every dime in our pocket and it was like that's some hip 
old school that's some Bo Diddley shit right there <laughs> like that's some Chuck Berry shit like it was just you know like he was like things are happening we're fine you know now of course they expanded and you know eventually they did have yeah because you don't know then kind of if you'll ever make any money ever again that might be the only money you'll ever make then maybe once well, it gets but, more consistent you can change you could change it a little bit granted but uh, but it just but that's that i just love that story because it's so hip you know because like so many people it's like the second that they can do it they do it you know yeah and it's which, like that is just right. That is just so hip, man. That's like so like, you know, Chuck Berry pulling up to the gig in his own car, like, give me my money in cash and let's do this. <laughs> and who cares if the band even knows my songs? Let's go. <laughs> exactly. I'm Chuck Berry. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But you know, everybody what's interesting too is like you said, everybody who does their own thing, so the the way that we do, I would I guess, has a different definition of success and level of contentment you know where they want to be what feels comfortable to them what's important to them and that you know everybody kind of has to find their own their own path on that sure absolutely yeah. man i just love doing it it's amazing like, i don't care about being in a bus like you said i'd be happy i don't even own a van i would love to own a van you know i don't have enough gigs in this country to own a van there's no reason for me to own so, a van. <laughs> so no lie no lie and uh, no lie so I finally bought a brand new van uh, in October of uh, 2019, <laughs> and uh, I was I was so like I was like man, and it was you know it's a 2019 brand new freaking went to Georgia because I saved like four grand by getting it down in Georgia, and like I had the money and I was like I'm gonna wait until the right one comes up and i right. you know it took me months and then i finally pulled the trigger on this thing and it is like mint and beautiful and clean and we used it you know october november we took december of, of 2019 off and then we were out on the road january february of 2020 and then obviously the world ended and yeah. it's just funny because now it sits and i have to make sure i drive it every week <laughs> i look forward to being able to beat the living piss out of it you know what i mean <laughs> i got it i finally got it but that sucker's yep. sitting and it's like oh man i ain't driven that in four days i better drive that around town <laughs> oh man crazy oh gosh yeah man dude let's uh let's jump into the 10 questions you got it all right, so some of these are self-explanatory, and we've talked about, they've touched on a little bit during the course of our conversation, but most of these Absolutely. I'm curious about. Um, number one, when you started learning and playing guitar initially, what was the mm -hmm. first, you know, not maybe lick, but the first thing you learned, and when you got it under your fingers, you, you kind of felt like, I can't believe I just figured this out. And it like set the hook, you know, like when you figure out something you've listened to a million times and it just, the inspiration hits, you know, and that's it. There's no going back. Well, um, let me get this so I can actually like explain it perfectly. I, I know, I, I remember exactly. Um, it was uh, Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis. And uh, one second, let me grab this cable. <laughs> by the by the by thank you very much thank you very much <laughs> special effects special effects here with josh smith 
but um, no, the thing that was that was cool about it is, um, you know, I was sitting there forever trying to get it to sound right, and um, and then I finally figured out what was going on, and it's something that still is uh, very much kind of a part of uh, the way that I play. So uh, what I was doing is super simple, but the. Microtone bend at the end where he's bending an E flat into an E against an E on top. Like, cause I I just was hearing it as always oh, playing an E, so it's like not right, you know. And it was it sort of started that whole thing of when I learn something, I learn it, you know, because it's right. like it's all those little things that people don't learn which is why we have bad barroom versions of so many things, because it's like they learn like 80%. And it's like, no, man, it's that little thing that makes it, you know, so yeah, no, I'll always remember that. Nice. You know? So Heartbreak Hotel, Scotty Moore. Nice. Man. Yeah. Well, that might be the answer to number two then, which was, is that the first solo you ever learned note for note? That I can remember. Yeah. That I can remember. Absolutely. I was just ate up with it. Um, but uh yeah i mean probably i would also say like that scene in blues brothers with john lee Hurum. you know that thing uh probably as well i would say um yeah. around the same time did so, you have did, your what mom, I was into. did you have blues brothers on vhs or something you rent it yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, it was my older. Okay, so one of my stepsisters. Um, I have three stepsisters and one stepbrother that are all like twenty years older than me. Right. And um, one of them, the youngest of those, Diane. She was like the wild child of my dad's first batch of kids, and she was obsessed with Saturday Night Live. So my obsession oh. with all things SNL comes from her, and okay. so like blues brothers animal house uh you know trading places uh ghostbusters all that stuff all my obsession with all that kind of stuff uh came from her and nice. it was hers and it's hilarious for me to think now because like the amount of profanity and inappropriate shit like now having a young child like thinking that i literally my daughter's two years old and it's like I was too like quoting Blues Brothers, and it's like, oh Jesus, man! No wonder I'm so fucking warped. Yeah, know? yeah. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing it vividly. You know, probably around that age, my parents loved Blues Brothers and Trading. You said Trading yeah. Places. That was like my dad's favorite. Yeah. I, I saw Trading Places so many times as a little kid. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it's so good. It's so yeah. good. First naked woman I ever saw. Yeah, yeah. I remember vividly that as well. <laughs> In fact, I remember I remember showing it to my son when he was really young, having him watch because he loved coming to America. And I was like, Oh, we gotta watch yeah, Trading yeah. Places. And my wife was like, He can't watch that yet. And I'm like, It's fine. And we, you know, watch Trading Places. Yeah. Yep. And then <laughs> Food and Rent. 
food and rent aren't the only things that are that are that cost money yeah, around here. Exactly. You sleep on the couch. I just remember you, watching Coming to America first with my son and you know, the bathing scene is within the first five minutes of the movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. totally cat totally yeah. Yeah. oh man oh, ro funny. the royal penis is is clean your highness yeah. <laughs> meanwhile oh, so good on an aside please don't let them fuck up coming to america i wish they did not do part two please. and i'm mad that it's coming out no and i'm so nervous it's a perfect movie and i just don't want them to fuck it up <laughs> And I'm nervous. I'm nervous because, man, Eddie Murphy. Like, I love Dolomite. I think that was awesome. I think he yeah. did a great job. But Eddie Murphy is not the Eddie Murphy of 20 years ago, let alone 30 years ago, let alone 35 years ago. Like, he is this weird alien now. You even like see, like he sits different. His, his facial expressions yep. are different. Like, yeah. like aliens took Eddie Murphy in like the mid 90s, and he is like some borg or something now like it's 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 troubling to think like as much as i enjoyed when he came back to snl a year ago it was cool but even that it was like yep there's I'm like it's his manic switch got flipped off or something it's like no man where's the like something happened like he i'm had, with you he, and eddie is took, our generation's guy you know what i mean yeah it's like totally, when, man. when last year when the eddie comedians and cars with coffee came out with yeah. Seinfeld. I was so hyped to see him just have a normal conversation and be funny. Yeah. And it took him a while, even in that where they edit it to warm up to where he started to be kind of funny and just regular with, with Jerry. It was yeah. weird. There's yeah. a, there's a really great, I know we can rabbit hole here, but the, I'll just say this. There's a really great podcast that John Landis, the director of coming to America and yeah. animal house and blues brother, all that. Yeah. He said that, when he did Beverly Hills Cop 2 with with Eddie, which a long time ago now, That's he said that time. Eddie was already, yeah, Eddie was already starting to change. And he said that Eddie was already getting to this point where he was like perverse enough in his own mind to not be funny, like on purpose, you mm -hmm. know, that like that entire movie, he said it was terrible because there'd be all these setups and it's like Eddie would come up to the setup and then he would like walk around it and it would be like, what is wrong with you? You know? And it's like, Crazy. it is, it's like, he got to a certain point and it's like, I don't know. He's like, he's like, Nope, not doing it. I'm yep. Eddie. I'll do what I want. You know? Yep. So it's like, ah, oh, come on. So anyway, yep. but we well, digress. We'll, see. we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Number three, <laughs> what's the first thing you play every time you pick up a guitar? Do your hands just go somewhere without thought? Oh man, that's a really good question. Everybody does that, don't they? All, all of us got it. Uh, it. It's changed over time. Uh, lately, the last couple of years, it's sort of like it's sort of a Lightning Hopkins kind of thing. That's just kind of where my hands go. Um, but uh, but that it's it's been other things over the years. But lately, it's been that. It's that that. Lord, turnaround thing is where my hands nice. normally go these days mine's changed over the years too because it used to be i would flip standby on the amp and the same thing at first i just rake the strings and then the same thing would come out every time so much so that guys in different scenarios would be parodying it back to me because they knew yes. i was about yes. to play it so i had to change yeah. <laughs> oh you know what here's here's another thing i do this to see if i'm in tune <laughs> 
where I'm like listening to see if things are that that yeah. thing. I do that a lot too, and it's me trying to hear quickly if things are out of tune or not. Yep, so. exactly. We, we all have yeah. those little things. Same thing like when you walk into a music store and you want to see if a guitar has it or not. What's the first thing you play yeah. to kind of check that guitar? We all got those little things, yeah. you know. Yeah, totally, yeah. man. Right. <laughs> That's a good right. one. I like that, Josh. All right, number four. What key, style, song, groove, feel? Maybe it's Lightning Hopkins. Do you kind of have running in the background a lot of the time? Like I notice, without fail, if I'm not listening to music, that normally. I'm hearing some sort of shuffle or swing, you know, syncopated dotted eighth note thing, like some some sort of triplets. Normally in B flat, I'm just hearing that always, you know, as if it's BB King or Charlie Parker or Wes Montgomery. But that's what I'm hearing all the time. Do you have something that just comes in and, and, and like that all the time? I do, yeah, I do. And again, it changes. Uh, but for the last, there's there there's there's three that are kind of like when I'm sitting by myself with a guitar, there's like three things that I'll go to like kind of inherently. And one is like, I've gotten during the quarantine in particular, I've just become so obsessed with Hill country stuff and junior Kimbrough in particular. And that sort of mid tempo hip hop sort of, sort of just nod your head kind of thing that is really really i was losing my shit last night too because daft punk just did a remix of one of his tunes oh wow. and it it came out a couple of days ago and it's so great like they took like five of his tunes and did a remix together where they kind of go in and out and it's so well done uh but that that has become a really really big like just kind of where my natural head is you know and it's because i'm so deep into that music and another is um like the last year in particular like fella like i never did a full deep dive into afrobeat and i just completely got lost in it during the pandemic and so that sort of or what where am i of thing is really kind of like as far as two things and then last but not least you know and so key wise like usually the junior kimbra thing is in g because he played in g most of the time so mm -hmm. it's like that's usually g with the afrobeat stuff it's usually some variant of of e minor or a minor uh but then my normal like go to uh key is actually uh, C sharp and it's you know it's yeah it's just you know it's immediately BB yeah so like those three things I know that's not one but it's like those are between those three yeah. it's like I do these things uh, I do these things on Instagram where I play in the bathroom and mm -hmm. and uh the amount of those that I'm like, all right, what do I want to play on this thing today? The amount of like, it's another Junior Kimbrough, it's another Afrobeat, or it's another variation of. It's like, all right, let's. What else can I do? You know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Nice. 
So cool. Yeah. I, I like all of those. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So number five is about finding your own voice. And I'm curious, you, I think like me have had periods of, you know, where certain things take over and you're into this, you're into yeah. that, you're into that. And then all of a sudden you kind of start realizing they've melded into something that's yours. And for me, I remember it being like very intentional, like at some point realizing, hey, I'm not saying anything. I'm going to I need to make every left turn I can. That's that when I play something that feels like mine, I'm going to go further that way. Did you kind of ever feel that or was it just totally natural? And when do you feel like maybe you started to have a voice that was yours? Just the last couple of years, honestly, um, there was a point a few years ago um, in 2000, was it six, was it 16 or was it 17? It was in 2016. So that crazy year that I mentioned where we were gone 300 days and it really, I mean, the band broke up as a result of it because you just, it was just too much. And we were at each other. By the time we got done with that year, we hated each other. Like mm -hmm. Adam and I didn't hate each other, but like it was, it was heavy, man. And um, that's why the band broke up. And uh, we, uh, it was about halfway through that year. Um, I just got sick of everything I was doing. I was just, I, really, I was just sick in general. I was just, we'd, you know, it was that thing where it's like, it was May and we'd already done like 130 gigs, you know, it was sure. like, I was burnt, you know? And so we came, I remember we got home from Europe and we had like two days off. And then we were starting another tour in Louisville. The tour started in Louisville, I remember. And, um, you know, I was using the Marshalls and I was, I was, uh, you know, that first phase of the band was very like 60s, you know, Marshalls, rock, uh, you know, cream uh, into all that. And I was just so sick of it. And I recognized that like, you know, what my rig and what I was sort of like doing was so pointed in a very specific direction that I had a lot of love for and all that, but I was just, I was over it. I was like, this is not, this is someone else. This isn't me. And, um, and if I'm going to make it through, you know, the next seven months, I need to figure out a way to enjoy it and be inspired. Otherwise I'm just going to go crazy. And, uh, and so what happened was, is I got home from that tour and I pulled out my old deluxe reverb that, uh, I'd used for the entire time I was in the Don Kelly band. And it was also my main studio amp. I pulled that out. My old 335, I hadn't had this for four or five months because Gibson had it. And so I got this, I went and picked this up from the custom shop and I pulled that deluxe reverb out. And we left for that next tour. And that was what I brought. And everybody was like, what the hell is, you know, where's the Les Paul? Where's your Marshalls? You know, like, are you crazy? And I was like, no, this is what I'm doing. And it was a very distinctive thing of like, I don't want the sound that immediately comes out to point me in a direction. I just want it to be kind of neutral mm -hmm. and open. And it's like, you know, it can be whatever it is that ends up happening. And so that was a very definitive change on my part. And, um, and then, 
I got a microphonic tube. So hold on a second. Let me turn that off. Uh, it's going behind my head. Um, the, uh, uh, so that was, that was a, a very distinctive thing. And since then, it's just been a, uh, you know, just a, a journey of just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, uh, I definitely have distilled down that from a psychedelic standpoint, I personally am more like eternally, uh, inspired by guys like Eddie Hazel from Funkadelic and, uh, my man, Michael Tolls, who played with Isaac Hayes. He actually signed my guitar down here. Um, and, uh, guys like Craig McMullen who played with Curtis Mayfield that sort of like using fuzz and walla like psychedelic but within a soul R&B world not so much the 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 white rock sort of thing um and then obsession with you know old you know like very very like Earl Hooker you know uh I just became enamored with Earl Hooker's slide plane because my, initially my slide plane was heavily influenced by Dwayne Allman and I love Dwayne Allman but uh man I just fell in love with Earl and I've just never looked back and so like whenever I play slide it's sort of I'm kind of coming from that and uh and you know and yeah now here lately I mean it's just a lot of a lot of hill country a lot of junior Kimbrough a lot of Afrobeat, and a lot of like you know, cleaner guitar player, you know, like really heavy obsession with Leo Nocentelli from the meters and, and uh, heavy, heavy influence of like Catfish Collins, you know, and sort of like putting all that together. And so, you know, for me, it's more about like kind of picking some more eclectic things to be completely obsessed about, you know, and throwing them in a blender and maybe not calling from, um, from influences that are so widely used, you know, I think mm -hmm. is probably, but I mean, it's not necessarily like I had, there was a de definitive uh, change uh, with like the rig, like sort of like me pulling a, a speed brake on it going, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to change. Um, but all this other stuff is just very, is very genuine in that it's just, I become obsessed with it. And it's like, the more you dig, the more you get into it and yeah. you know, you just keep throwing it in there. What about you, man? I'm just curious. Like, what about, I, I throw that back at you like from a you know from a, you say that like you know when you started finding your own voice like what was it for you i'm just curious oh it was that. you know initially all i cared about was albert king and bb king uh you know those were the beginnings for me um and then and then it was just stevie when steve when i found stevie obviously that took over and yes yeah, yeah. stevie led to a lot of stuff like i wouldn't have heard otis rush without stevie you know, and, and things like that. But Stevie took over so much so where that's what I did. I played like Stevie Ray Vaughan. I switched to a Strat. I wanted to be Stevie Ray Vaughan. You know, but I'm a kid. Yeah. You know, I'm t 12 years old, 13, 14. Yeah. Totally. And, then, and then I started to, you know, get into jazz a little bit um, because I was starting to play with better musicians. And some of them were jazzers. So they would say, hey, you should listen to this Charlie Christian or you should listen to this Wes Montgomery. And then especially Charlie Parker. When I heard Charlie Parker, it was like, that killed me because the, just the feel that he played with, the swing that he, he phrased with. So I started to get some of that in my playing. And then next thing I knew, someone gave me a tape and it had Danny Gatton. And that was really, the, the yeah. for me, the real change of, okay, when I started working on that stuff, 
I started hybrid picking. And when I started hybrid picking, it felt like, okay, I've got my love of the blues. I've got, now I'm learning some jazz and I like the phrasing of jazz and I'm starting to learn some jazz harmony. But now I'm picking everything like Danny Gatton because I'm obsessed with Danny Gatton and right. the way that he right. played. And also I love the freedom that he would play anything, anytime. Like if he heard it, he yeah, played yeah. it, just came out. And I felt like when I mixed yeah. those things together, all of a sudden it was like, hey, this thing I just played tonight on the gig, I'd never played that before. I'm going to do more of that. And then it was conscious. Like, And also it was influenced by the fact that around that time I was seeing so many guys playing Stevie Ray Vaughan. And it was, you know, yeah. I was a 13-year-old, but these guys were 45 years old, you know, and it was like, I, yeah. I don't want to look like that. I, I You know, that's not, yeah. I, I got a goal in mind here. So it was like, I, I, I also knew I needed to turn away from that, you know. Yeah, no, totally. totally. Yeah. I had a very similar, going back to my teenagers, I had a very similar, just with the Stevie thing in particular. Because once I started traveling, like you say, like, because I was very much, you know, as a 12, 13-year-old kid, I was, uh, you know, I call it the strata blasting phase. You know, you, you, uh, I was, I was, I was there as well. And once I started traveling around and seeing that like every town had not just one, but five yes. of them, yeah. uh, that was, that was something. But then also it was like, for me personally, like I was like 17 years old when I first heard the first Thunderbirds record. Mm. And once I heard Jimmy, like in all of his glory, like, I, it was over for me. I was like, that's my guy. Cause it was like, when I heard girls go wild, it was just like, holy shit, check this guy out. <laughs> and like, what? I was, and I got it. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I just remember yeah. also feeling like, you know, okay. Obviously Stevie loved Albert King more than anything in the world. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. but you know, he wasn't just trying to copy Albert King you know, and Albert King yeah. wasn't trying to copy anybody, and uh, you know, and yeah, BB King loved fucking Charlie Christian and Django Reinhardt and T Bone Walker, but he wasn't trying to copy those guys. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, yeah. they, they just kind of were being honest, and and it felt like, man, if I'm not being honest, I'm fucking it up. So it was like I I just got to no, totally. pay more attention to that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Even though you could make an argument like Otis Rush, Buddy Guy. You know, anybody, certainly post-BB, they had periods where, just like we had periods of Stevieism, they were BB King. That's all they wanted to do, you know? Yeah, no, BB, I mean, shit, man. I mean, we wouldn't have, this is a great story, and I just, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll do it really quick. You probably already know, I'm sure you already know, but it's like Freddie King, like, you know, he, his family moved to Chicago in 48 or 49 and he spent the entire decade of the fifties in Chicago as a kid, as a teenager mm -hmm. and growing into a man as a prodigy, this great guitar player and couldn't get a deal. Couldn't it, chess wouldn't sign him and Cobra wouldn't sign him because they said he sounded too much like BB. Mm -hmm. And it's like, thank God they didn't sign him because then dejected, he was moving. He was on his way to move back to Texas in 1960 he stopped in Cincinnati and uh, to, and he did a pickup session at King Records uh, for that Smokey Smothers record uh, yep. where they needed somebody to play like Eddie Taylor, who Eddie Taylor and Jimmy Rogers were the two guys who taught Freddie how to play and were like his mentor. And so he went in and did a good job and they said, well, man, why don't you come back tomorrow? Maybe we'll cut something on you. And then he cuts Hideaway the next day. Yep. And we have Freddie King, you know, like 
crazy, you know. But yeah, no, I mean, it's like he 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 loved BB King. Oh, dude, BB <laughs> BB turned out everybody. I mean, everybody. He turned out. I mean, he was the, the standard bearer. You know, changed the whole game without question. Totally. Oh, totally. I, all right, number six. So good. What What do you consider your biggest weakness on the guitar? Biggest weakness on the guitar. That's interesting. Um, you know, my biggest weakness is 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 probably chordal uh, chordal knowledge. Um, I know enough to get me in trouble, but you know, like you, there's friends of mine that you know, it's just like, oh my god, you know, the things that they can. The, the the things that they can comp at a moment's notice you know like i know all my obviously i mean it's like i know all my my inversions and i know uh a fair amount of substitutions and so on and so forth but it's like that rabbit hole is so deep that um i can't claim uh you know there there's certain things that i feel really confident like uh sharing and 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 feeling like i have a really good grasp on but that is absolutely not one of them you know yeah, I and, and it's and it's just you know and 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 to and to be completely frank like so much of the type of stuff that that absolutely like makes me be obsessed with it doesn't have a lot of that that yeah. it's like i've avoided a fair amount of it on purpose because like what if if anything i'm trying to play more primitively than i ever have and that's a whole nother discussion because to play primitively when you have knowledge and you have dexterity and stuff like that is arguably as hard as playing something super complicated it's a very slippery slope between the two and you know I mean, obviously it goes without saying that it's like, you know, if you're trying to play primal uh, music that's really kind of fucked up, you know, it's like you have to be really careful with what you put in there. And so, you know, as much as I love Barney Kessel and I love I love Grant Green, you know, it's like I, I'm very careful with like what I kind of put in because there's only so much that I truly want to kind of be in what I'm doing, you know. So, yeah, but it, it's a big, big blind spot, big blind spot compared to many. Okay. You know, all right. It is, it is a balancing act of, you know, I, I one that I've tried to deal with most of my life, like being in, in a blues guy at heart and wanting to sound a certain way in everything you do, but continuing to grow as a musician and push yourself and learn more things and get better but still sound like that guy that you think you are in your mind and in yeah. here it's difficult it's yeah. a it's a tightrope you know uh and that's uh, it, no it definitely is and that's where i think you know my obsession for the last good bit with all this hill country stuff rl burnside fred mcdowell it's stuff that when you listen to it you're like oh they're just doing this but then you try and make it sound like that and you and you just sound like white bread like it's just it's so you're not doing it you know and and it's like trying to internalize like phrasing and how certain things are supposed to feel 
it's so subtle and there's no real right way. Like that's, what's so fascinating to me about it is that like having learned stuff that's incredibly like, uh, deck, you know, requires a lot of dexterity or it's complicated. It is so much more immersive and hard for me to like sit down with something really primitive and be like, I really want to be able to do this because it's like, how do you do that? Like that's yeah. the thing. It's different every time I sort of take something apart. Whereas if something is difficult or it's fast or it's harmonically complex or something, it's like, there's a process I can apply to picking it apart and learning it. Whereas 100%. this other stuff is more, is more abstract. And it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's I don't know. That's, I mean, I'm, that's why I'm like all excited because it's like, yeah, no, you're hundred so percent right. You're hundred percent yeah. right. It's way harder to play Magic Sam Boogie right than it is to learn Spain by Chick Corea. You know yeah. what I mean? No, yeah. it is. It is. It yeah. is. And it's just, I, I just can't. It, it's mystifying why that is, and I just, and it's also like it just, just obsession doesn't even begin to cover it. It's just like yeah. my wife like laughs and she's like, "Can we just listen to something normal in the house?" You know? And I'm like, "What is normal?" It's yeah. that it's that channel it's that it's that channel on an amplifier I never plug into. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh. All right, number seven. Who's a huge influence on your guitar playing that people would be surprised to hear? That's a really good question. Um you know i guess that uh, there, there's two one is probably more obvious than others but like growing up growing up in the early 90s early and mid 90s i love the, ch the red hot chili peppers so so frusciante is is definitely i just love john frusciante but i'll take it a, a step further i love nirvana I love Nirvana a lot and I love Kirk O'Payne's guitar playing and um, it, it brings out all the normal kind of childhood stuff, uh -huh. um, especially in, in utero. Um, <laughs> I sort of had an elitist uh, 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 a view of music, even as a grade schooler. <laughs> and so Nevermind was too fucking commercial for me. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, ah, it's good. But, you know, have you heard this? You know, so when In Utero came out, I was like, fuck yes. Like, because it was just so much raw. And, uh, you know, I loved it. So, so yeah, I would probably say that. It's, I, I, I think most people wouldn't think of, think of that. I don't know. And I don't know if I talk about that much, but I love Kirk O'Pain and his, and his guitar playing you know nice so all right uh number eight would you rather have on a gig a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa a great amp and a oh, shitty guitar i vice versa i would rather have a shitty guitar and a great amp personally. yeah i'm uh, with you 100 percent, without a doubt without a doubt because to be honest with you like i mean obviously i play this i play my guitar this one all the time but I have all the, a, a lot of these old K's and punch up guitars. I love shitty guitars. I mm. love them. I absolutely love them. And there's a thing that they do that nothing else can do. And it's like that with a good super reverb or something else all day long, son. All day yeah. long. 
but you wouldn't love that you wouldn't love that k guitar into a jc120 no not at all not at all not at all no yeah. no 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 not at all not yeah. at all and i'm, I'm sorry if you like many... jc120s it's no affront to you i'm sorry no 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 not at all not at all i'm curious is there anybody is everybody answer that is that typically oh, an... split 50 50. is it really yeah but a lot of guys rely on a very specific guitar to do their thing and where they wouldn't function okay. without that guitar interesting okay all right that makes sense yeah. that's crazy man <laughs> yeah but i'm i'm 100 percent with we, you we've done a lot of fly dates man exactly. we've done a lot of fly dates yeah. it's like it's like oh yeah we got this uh we got this red knob twin that one speaker is blown yeah. and uh here you go buddy <laughs> well if you want go go look at stevie ray vaughn umbria jazz festival or in Finland with the wall of Marshall combos and see if he's enjoying having his main guitar through those t amps. He's not. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen that footage, but I've seen a picture of the one with all the Marshall with the shitty Marshalls. I've Dude, seen that, so the, there's the one with the shitty Marshalls, but even worse in Umbria, they got there and something happened with the back line and he, they couldn't uh, even get him twins. And wow. he's playing through, um, uh, a Fender Stage 2 combo, like 80s yeah. one, with a 15-inch extension cabinet under it, and then like an Alembic preamp and power amp and some PA speakers. It's insanity. Yes. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. <laughs> it was oh, like somebody awesome. brought the shit down to the gig last minute because something happened with the back line. Here's what I got for you, bro. And it's a huge it's a Umbria Jazz Festival. Like, yeah. God, that's so killer. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So you and I are on the same page there. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Number nine. What keeps you so motivated? Like, I know you, you're an obsessive, like, like you said. So if it's Hill Country Music right now or Fela... You, you listen to something, you get obsessed, and it, it pushes you to grow. But how does that never change? How do you always have that? Like, I, I'm always curious what keeps you pushing to better yourself as a musician. Well, I, I don't think, um, I, I don't know. Like, I think the key to it is I don't view it as, like, I'm doing this to better myself. Um, I... Uh, I love listening to music as much as I love playing it. I really do. Like I get as much enjoyment from sitting with my records, um, which is my main passion. Like that's, Oh, and that's another thing that like people ask me, like if you ask me on a, on a normal day on the road, would you go to a record store? Or would you go to a music store? I never would go to a music store. It's always a record store. Right. I never will go to a music store. I don't, it's just not, it's not, I'll, I'll go to a record store every day, you know, and flip through the bins and, and dig. And I'm an absolute crate digger when it comes down to it. And, um, I, that, that's the secret for me is that I just, there's, there's, um, it, it got ignited like back, you know, the story I told about being in the car and not having listened to music. Once I relit the fuse of what it feels like, to uh to discover music that i haven't heard before um it's it, it's the the dominant 
um, part of my daily routine. My Spotify is, uh, is insane because it's every single day I'm on there trying to find, I try and listen to at least a record a day that I hadn't heard before that I didn't know existed. And it can be anything. It can be anything. Um, And the thing that's beautiful about that is it's so easy, you know, because it's like at this point, what's kind of programmed into my algorithm is so schizophrenic that it's like at any given point, you know, it's, you know, obviously there's a lot of kind of, uh, there, there's there's a lot of funk and a lot of R&B music and there's a lot of like blues and a lot of, um, um, you know, there, there's 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 a lot of all that. But then there's 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 other things that come up like, you know, for example, like there was a couple of weeks ago where um, I got really into listening to Steinhausen, which was uh, a, a avant garde composer from Germany in the 70s. And he like he wrote these piano concertos that are kind of like sort of like glass, you know, they're, they're, they're a little, uh, they're a little out there, but they're, but they're not completely, you know, like, like atonal and weird. But then he had this era in the early seventies where he made these, you know, essentially soundscape records that are kind of 10 years before Brian Eno would kind of pioneer that. And it's literally soundscapes, it's sound effects and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, it is absolutely crazy people music, but I like, for whatever reason, like I was ready to kind of like dive into it for several days and I actually was enjoying it. Like I wasn't doing it because I felt I needed to, I wasn't doing it to be ironic or anything. Like I was generally like, I got, uh, I, I saw something on a John Spencer blues explosion record that like cited Steinhausen. And I was like, well, let me read about this. And then I listened to it and it's like, you know, it's complete. It's, it's crazy people music, you know, but it's like, I, I just like it. I like that discovery process. I like yeah. that feeling of, uh, of clicking on a record that I, that I have no idea what it is. Or I like that thing of running through the bins and picking something up and going, well, man, this looks cool. I wonder what this is, you know, mm-hmm. like that. It's just, that's a big part of my daily, you know, my daily thing, you know, and it, yeah. and that just trans transfers over into musicianship yeah. because you're just continually feeding your subconscious. Um, and I very actively like, don't, I, there's certain things that I'll get into and I'll listen, but I do make a point like not to like let any one thing specifically kind of dominate my listening because I think that that, 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 that affects me negatively. And there's certain things I'll avoid in particular because I know it will affect me negatively from a musician standpoint. Um, and certain things on the contrary, like there's certain things that always lead me to a good place too. You know, like there's, there's certain things that inspire me in a really good way that seem to. So anyway, I could go on for days about this, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I just dig so. the, you know, the constant exploration. I need to be better about that on my Spotify. You know, it's like sometimes if I go into the, you know, I've never heard this section before, what's new or recommended things that I've never heard. If it doesn't grab me right away, I immediately go back and listen to something I love. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Be be better about that. But that's the thing is that like, even if you don't like one thing, you can move on to another record. And it's like, because that's the thing, like, you know, relatively quickly when you click on something, if you think it's hip. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. So Very it's well. like, and I've gotten turned on to so many. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, like, 
you know, and part of that also is the pandemic where it's like, I've had more time than I've ever had to concentrate. So it's like, but my knowledge of like what music exists in the world today is better than it's ever been. And it's completely because of that. And it's fucking fun, man. It's so much good shit exists. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. All right. Uh, number 10, man. Do you have a five-year plan? Is there somewhere you want to be? Or is it more, let me just go what feels natural, follow, you know, follow the path, whatever. Or do you have some specific goals that you would like to check off? I really, no, I don't. I don't. I, I, uh, um, once upon a time I was, I I thought that way. Um, no, I very much am a one day at a time person right now. Um, I'm a happier person living one day at a time, honestly. Um, part of what made me not enjoy life um and uh drove me crazy was kind of you know i i need every you know part of being obsessed with listening to music um and discovering new music is because it's so in the moment it's like i i need for me to be happy and enjoy my day um anything i can do to kind of stay rooted in the moment i'm in because when i stop doing the self-care things and stop doing the things that I have now learned to do to help myself, my hamster wheel starts turning, the gratitude meter gets shut off, and all of a sudden I'm obsessing over things that I can't control. I'm obsessing over things that don't really matter. They're not here. And, um, you know, it's amazing to me time and time again, when I look at my entire life, literally the biggest like positive things that have happened in my personal life happened because I was doing what I was supposed to be doing at a specific moment and seemingly something just fell out of the sky and I was ready to receive it. Mm. You know, it wasn't because I tried to jam something that I was wanting or thought I wanted Um, more often than not. When I was kind of approaching life from that standpoint, I was pretty fucking miserable you know and so you know that's for me at the moment it's it's literally just trying to take it one day at a time as they say nice <laughs> well all right it works if you work it and you're worth it <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> oh man well that's uh, the end of the 10 questions dude thank you for doing this it's a pleasure to you know get a little bit more of your story um for the rulers hang on we'll do turn two but if you're not a ruler yet please become a ruler or at least subscribe to the channel because it will uh, help keep me motivated to continue to do stuff during this period of time uh so i appreciate that and dude dude thank you thank you for taking time out of your day to do this dude dude it's my pleasure i love you like a family member and and i'm grateful thanks for asking me to do it and uh and you all pimp out my man josh man because he's the shit (laughs) and you could print that (laughs) (laughs) all right you heard it all right thanks everybody and uh rulers we'll be right back thanks jd